Why do we tip? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Tony Gill. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragoni, your host, and today our guest is Tony Gill. Tony is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington, adjunct professor of sociology at the University of Washington, distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, and a senior fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Tony specializes in political economy and religion and politics, with an emphasis on church-state relations, religious liberty, and religious economies. Additionally, he has become internationally renowned for his work on his defense of tipping, and he is an author with published books and has also published numerous journal articles, book chapters, and was the creator and host of the Research on Religion podcast series, which ran from 2010 to 2018. He has appeared on other podcasts, such as Econ Talk with Russ Roberts, one on religion and one on tipping, which you could check out. And now he's appearing here. He previously appeared on gift giving, which you can check out as a previous episode. And now today we are talking about tipping. Tony, welcome back to The Curious Task. It's great to be back. And it's great to have you back on. So we, as you know, we base each episode on a theme in question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Uh, last time we were talking, we were talking about gift giving. But our question today is, why do we tip? So we'll really be getting into your thoughts on exactly that, of course, and the economic anatomy, if you will, of this social institution. Um, be, before we dive right into that, though, I thought it'd be kind of interesting and fun to set the stage actually with um, some of the cases people make against tipping, even if it's just anecdotal, before I start picking your brain about, uh, you know, what what is beneath tipping and what's really going on there, what in, in your travels and the, the things you've listened to as you dive into this topic, what are the kinds of things people throw around when they talk about why tipping is bad or why they don't like it? Well, one of the most common aspects of it is that nobody knows when to tip or how much to tip. Oh, that becomes absolutely confusing. Most people get it at a restaurant, especially here in the United States and Canada and a, a few other places around the world. So, okay, we understand we're supposed to tip at a restaurant. And then it starts to get a little murky because some people say, well, I'm supposed to tip 15% for good service, but now it's more like 20%. And even some places creeping up to 25%. So you start getting uncertain there. Uh, but then are you supposed to tip when you just pick up food? Um, you know, so I call into a, a Thai restaurant and I pick up my food and am I supposed to give them a tip there. They're not really giving me customized service. So I feel awkward. Um, what about self-serve frozen yogurt shops? Uh, I see tip jars there and I'm like, even myself, I'm, I love tipping. I think it's a great institution. But I look at that tip jar and I go, that's stupid. Nobody helped me out here. It was self-serve. Right. I did it myself. I should tip me. I actually, I walked out and I pat myself on the back, say, great job making it very much like a parfait. So those are some of the, the classic uh, arguments against tipping. More and more people, though, are becoming frustrated with the uh, pay-at-the-table service. You get those little electronic um, handheld devices that the server is carrying and they come up and they say, oh, this is what your you know bill is going to be. And then there's, you know, suggested tips. 
right. 20, 25 or more. And you feel so uncomfortable with the, the server staring at you. Sometimes they'll turn away. Um, my wife and I were just recently at a drive up, old fashioned drive up where you eat in your car and they, somebody comes to your car and, and serves you. And I love that. So we ordered. And then even before we got our food, you know, they hand us the the thing to pay. I put in my card and it said, would, what would you like to tip? And I'm like, I don't know if I've gotten good service yet. Right. So that that frustration is becoming more and more common, especially with new forms of payment. Yeah, I, I, I actually heard that last one you talked about a lot. People tend to complain about the fact that like, you know, wherever that essentially wherever digital payment and electronic payment uh, devices are, no matter what really you're involved in and what you're paying for, that that tip screen sort of appears. So people sort of I've, I've, I've often heard the complaint, like, you know, the quote unquote, we're, we seem to have to tip for everything now. Like, you know, that kind of thing. I have heard that a lot from people, too. So that's an interesting one. Well, we, we just quickly explored why people might not like tipping or some of the confusion around it. And of course, there are people that just say, you know, tipping is great for this or that simple reason. And sometimes it can be summarized in a simple reason. But one thing I really liked about your recent uh, articles at AIER, Tony, is that you 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 turned this whole discussion into a three-part series. And I have to say that there's a lot more going on there than a lot of people think. So, you know, I wanted to start with actually conveniently where your first article in the three-part series start, which is you kind of break it down and talk about, you know, first, we need to understand the institution of tipping as it is as sort of like, you know, in the context of the principal agent problem. And then like, you know, then you kind of get into the basics of how right off the bat tipping sort of at least contributes to solving this problem. So first, can we actually take some time in explaining what the principal agent problem is before we even get to tipping, especially for those unfamiliar with this concept, what is the principal agent problem? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very, very important concept within economics and political economy. The idea is that you have two individuals, a principal or you could think of them as a boss or an employer, and an agent, an employee, where the principal wants the agent to do something, and they want them to do a very good job at it according to specifications, but they can't monitor that person all the time. So they somehow need to incentivize the person to do a really good job when they can't be monitored all the time. Because the agent, I mean, the, the agent or the employee certainly wants you know, to do a good job and things like this. But there's times you want to slack off a little bit, you know, kind of cut a few corners on the job. And the employer or the principal is going to know that. So how do you do that? And I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can put up, you know, cameras that monitor people. Uh, it's not only monitoring the customer, but also your employees on the floor, like at a Walmart or something like that. Are they being kind and things like that? You could have suggestion boxes and, you know, response, things like that. That solves the principal agent problem. But in the institutions that has arisen, it goes back to, we believe, uh, 16th century somewhere in England uh, is the best guess where this institution arose. And it, it basically is to solve this uh, you know, problem of principal agents, is that if you ever, let's take the most common example, a restaurant, right? Um, the restaurant owner wants to have the diners come in and have a wonderful experience. That's going to be the food. And it's also going to be the ambiance, if you have some nice music and beautiful you know, murals on the wall and the like, but also the service. 
And now the ambiance is pretty easy to determine. Is it good or is it bad? The food is pretty easy because when it comes out, is the spaghetti hot or is it not hot, right? That's pretty easy. But the service is a little bit more difficult. And the service actually involves a lot of different you know, small activities that most people don't think of. People think, oh, restaurant work is really easy, low-skilled job. All contraire. Right. Uh, being a really good server is important, is that you pick up you know, cues from the customers. Uh, does the person seem to be in a rush? They might want to get to the theater and they need to get the food very quick and their bill right away. Right. So there you want a very attentive waiter or waitress. And maybe on the other hand, it looks like they're having a date and they just want to be left alone to mull over some wine or something like that. Um, some people like to have their glasses refilled and say, oh, would you like another drink? Other people uh, don't want that. They don't like chit-chatting a lot with the server. So you know, having somebody who has those skills is really, really important. And a good wait staff will be able to do that. Now, the owner wants that you know, person to really be attentive to those skills and cater to those skills. But the owner or the manager can't be there on the floor watching this all the time. So how do you incentivize this? Well, tipping is a great way is because if you had a good service experience, you know, the rule of thumb or the social norm is you know, give 15 percent. If it's really, really good service, maybe give 20 percent. Right. If it's not good service, maybe you shouldn't leave a tip. Um, and so, again, with the, the wait staff understanding that they're going to be rewarded according to how well they serve the customer, they have a very strong incentive to pick up all the cues, to do the best job possible, even when the manager or the restaurant owner isn't watching. Brilliant solution to this. I should also note that there's a principal agent problem as well between the customer and the wait staff. Because me as a diner wants to incentivize, you know, good service, the kind of service that I want. I want to get it done really quick because I just like to eat and run and, you know, please be paying attention to me and get my food out quick. And so, you know, I they know that I have certain things that I want to have, uh, you know, accomplished. And so I'm the principal to them and they're going to serve me as best possible. So it works out really well in that regard uh, for everybody. It especially works out if you return to the restaurant frequently, right? right? Me as a, a regular customer, you know, want to be treated a little bit special. I have my own places. I have one of my favorite places, the Duval Tavern. Love the place, love the ambiance, love the people there. And, you know, so I'm a pretty generous tipper there. And they know that when I come in, you know, I'm going to be generous with them. And, you know, they, they always have a seat for me at the bar. Right. They'll make sure that I get my drink right away and proper. And they'll ask me again for all that kind of thing. So, you know, if I'm a regular customer, I'm basically incentivizing future good service as well. Mm, right. And yeah, so this is a very interesting perspective, of course, of when you put the economic lens on, because, you know, sometimes the consumer or the receiver of services or goods often just looks at it as another thing they have to do, but they don't really look at it as solving organizational problems, basically. Um, but however, I want to bring us back to that idea I sort of said a lot of people are saying these days, I'm tipping for everything these days. It seems like a restaurant is a good example that you laid out where tipping uh, solves problems, incentivizes good things, and it it's really is a thing where everybody benefits. But what say you about like places where it seems silly to tip? Like, do you yourself even have some examples where you're like, you know what, 
yeah, this is just sort of a social norm creep creeping into this category, but it might not be really fixing any organizational problems like self-serve or self-pickup uh, when you're purchasing literally a good or something comes to mind in my mind. But maybe there's more that meets the eye. I don't know. What's your opinion on that? That's absolutely correct. You know, this whole idea of you know tip creep, as I call it, is creeping into every possible institution is really tarnishing the institution. Hmm. So a good example for me is that when I go to a coffee shop and get coffee, I just like plain old drip coffee. You know, then then there's nothing to that. Right. It's like, you know, give me a medium coffee. You pour it in there. You know, they hand it to you and it's like, is it full? Yes, it's full. You know, there's there's no customized service there. You know, often at Tim Hortons or Starbucks, they'll have a little, you know, bucket there that said tips. And I've had some, you know, the the counter employees look at that, you know, down at the tip and I say, I'm not tipping for this. Right. I, I'm very clear on that is that you didn't really do any customized service. Now, on the other hand, if I ordered, you know, a, a triple shot cappuccino with an orange twist and nutmeg at a certain temperature, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, and, and I really kind of customize that. Yeah, that, then you should tip. Right. That that makes a lot more sense. Right. So it's places where there is that kind of principal agent problem and where you want to incentivize that kind of customized detailed service where tipping makes a lot more sense. Um, you know, another uh, other good examples like this are, um, you know, pizza delivery. I used to work in the, the pizza industrial complex delivering pizza when <laughs> right. I was in college. And I, I can tell you, right, if you wanted your pizza getting there hot and fast, and you know, often I worked in the kitchen too, you know, regular tippers, you know, oh, this person likes mushrooms. I'll give them some extra mushrooms. And they treated me well. I treated them well. Hmm. And, um, you know, again, the employer wants you to treat everybody well. But on the other hand, they understand that the employee has some ability to customize service to keep those regular customers who are really important. Right. But I don't tip my UPS driver, the delivery driver, or the garbage pickup person. That's dumb. Right. And that's silly. And so I understand the frustration of people that say, no, tipping is everywhere. And again, you know, at this um, drive in restaurant that my wife and I went to the other day, I, it was just absolutely silly that I was giving a tip before I received any of our food. Right. Like, I didn't know how this was going to turn out. This is supposed to be a reward for customizing my behavior. If I give you the reward before you do anything, mm-hmm. you no longer have an incentive to do well by me. Right. And, you know, but then again, you know, it was this awkward moment. You're paying, you know, they're standing there. There's those little buttons. You want 15% or 20%. You're like, okay, you know, if if I don't hit 20%, are they going to spit in my food or something like that? That's a problem. That's not how the institution should be running. And I, you know, I would like to see it return to its old kind of, you know, old fashioned way where you give it where there are principal agent problems and you give it after the services have been rendered. Um, I don't know how we get back there, but I understand why people are getting frustrated and it's justified in light of the principal agent problem. Right. Do, do you think sort of the fact that you're asked to tip, for instance, at a self-serve yogurt place, just to be funny about it for a sec, do you think that kind of stuff almost like creates, if you will, like a negative externality, almost like against the next server you see at like whatever restaurant? Because people are fed up with tipping everywhere and maybe they don't <laughs> think as much about where they frankly should be tipping. Like if someone gives them outstanding service at a restaurant, for example, I think that's another problem too, is that the overall frustration might really have people not a little distracted but the word is sort of might jade them from tipping where they really might they might they should kind of thing i i think that's absolutely true and you're seeing it not so much with the older generation right i 
kind of grew up with, you know, 10% was, you know, my parents taught me 10% was good service tipping, and then it went to 15%. I'm still readjusting to 20 percent. But younger generations that see this all the time, especially that ones are very familiar with electronic payments, um, I can see them getting frustrated with that. And that and that's going to, you know, decay the institution uh, overall. And I think that's that's a shame. Now, there's other things that are causing problems. We'll get to more of that later on. But definitely, you know, expanding into territories. And, you know, if I could, you know, preach on my soapbox here, I would tell people, listen, you know, understand where there are major principal agent problems where you want that customized service um, and where the employer also knows that they need to have that kind of customers customized service and tip there. If it's not in a, if, if that's not the case, don't tip. Don't tip. You're going to feel like a jerk and stuff, but we need to stay strong to keep this institution strong. Yeah, fair enough. I, I think we're on, on that point, though, where it breaks down sometimes, unfortunately, from a consumer perspective. Sometimes consumers forget where they shouldn't be tipping and therefore they should expect minimum service. Like, I think we've all unfortunately been behind that person in line at the McDonald's that's complaining about not getting, you know, Michelin star service out of McDonald's. And I think we, we need to also tell other consumers sometimes, hey, ma'am, this is just a McDonald's. Please please just take your coffee and leave this person alone. So I, I, th- I think that's another thing I've observed, too, is like when it's very transactional, at least in my experience, like you said, like someone delivers you something or whatever, I'm not expecting like a, a huge amount of service from the UPS guy or whatever, just that I paid the delivery fee and it gets delivered as well. Yeah. Uh, and if it's easy to evaluate the quality of it and, you know, to call in a complaint, if you have to call in a complaint, yeah, then, then you shouldn't be tipping at all um, like that. Actually, a lot of my students, when I ask them, why do we tip? They oftentimes say, well, it's because the person isn't making a lot of money. Hmm. You, know, you know, the waitress or the waiter is not making a lot of money. You know, first of all, actually, waiters and waitresses, especially at upper end restaurants, can really pull in a lot of a lot of bank. Yeah, especially that's when true. it comes to tipping. But I, I, I turn to them. I go, well, do you, you know, tip the, the cashier at Walmart? You know, they're not making a whole lot, right? They, you know, <laughs> um, they say, hey, thank you. You really rang in that, you know, my my clothing really well and that toothpaste. The way you moved the box around was wonderful. No, you don't do that, uh, and because you're not expecting that kind of customized service um, in that respect. Right. Exactly. I was going to dive into a next pillar here. It's a little early yet, but I am going to take our break here, Tony, because I think the next thing's a, a bigger swing of conversation. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Tony Gill today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Tony Gill today. So, Tony, I think the first half was great. We jumped right into your thoughts on tipping and really the whole this whole principal agent problem discussion around tipping and how it's a little more useful than appears as a social institution. So, I thought that was quite interesting. Right before the break, you mentioned that you know, for example, some of your students, uh, upon first thought or or first blush, sometimes they say, "Oh, well, you tip people when they." Uh, when they, when they don't make a lot of money or, or so on and so forth. And then you use the cashier example to show that that's not the case, even probably by their own revealed behavior and pre- preferences. Um, and that's interesting in and of itself. 
I want to connect that to sort of this idea, and restaurants are a good example here, where some people say that the problem in, for instance, the restaurant industry is that a lot of folks don't make a lot of money. That's what necessitates tipping. So therefore, for example, in the restaurant industry, you know, wages should be such and such or, or, or whatever. Uh, I know in Canada, at least, there's a lot of jurisdictions, for example, where um, restaurants have an exception to the minimum wage rule because the idea is, you know, you have a lower wage as a server and have fun making as many tips as you want sort of thing. But all that to say, with, with this type of idea that tips are a supplement to a wage and that we ought to just uh, pay or restaurant owners ought to just pay waiters higher and then that solves a bunch of problems and, quote, the need for tipping. Why do you think, it seems in, in your ideas, is this a risky proposition or a bad idea? Why is this sort of a wrong-headed approach to the, the whole point uh, from your perspective? Yeah, this gets into the the second article that I wrote for AIER, and it's a little bit more of a tricky explanation. It revolves around this idea of price discrimination. And that always sounds bad when people hear discrimination. But, you know, the idea is we discriminate between things, right? We we like one thing and we tend to go there more. We dislike something else and we go there. And what the whole idea is that people have diverse preferences, Right. Some people, are, you know, love to dine out a lot and they like to go, you know, eat at restaurants and they, they, they're very generous with their time. Other people are not so generous. They just want to you know, get the meal. The only reason I eat meals is so I can get my 500 calories so I can continue living and stuff like that. Right. So so people have different preferences and they'll pay different amounts for that. Now, how this relates to the payment of, again, we'll go back to the, the restaurant workers because it's a really good example. How this gets back to restaurant workers is that restaurants oftentimes run on very, very thin profit margins. It's a very risky business to go into. You know, some days, you know, the, the restaurant is just packed with people because it's the in thing to do. And then, you know, lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, your restaurant's not fashionable and it just kind of, you know, crashes and things like this. So it's very risky. And restaurant owners want to keep prices as low as possible to bring in as many people as you can. Now, there's going to be some very high-end diners, right? They're going to come in being at a restaurant and eating and having that whole experience, I'm willing to shell out a lot of money in order to do that, right? So those are great. You'd love to have all those as customers. But on the other hand, you can't guarantee that, right? There might be people that just like, well, I'll go out, you know, as, as long as it's pretty low price and I can kind of enjoy the experience, right? The worst thing for any restaurant is empty seats, Right. That's a killer for any kind of restaurant, because there, there's two reasons for this. One might be fairly obvious is that, well, if you're not seating any customers, that space is being wasted. You're still paying the mortgage for this. Uh, and that's problematic. Moreover, you want to hire a lot of staff to make sure that everybody is served well. So you tend to want to have more staff members on, you know, on call than, than not because, you know, if you only have one server and it's a big, huge rush, well, service is going to be bad and everybody's going to be complaining. So let's get a few more servers there in the restaurant. Um, but it, it's such a big gamble there, right? So that's one of the problems with having empty seats. The other big problem with having empty seats is that when people walk by the restaurant and they don't see anybody sitting in the restaurant, they go, must not be very good. Nobody's there. You know, there's the old, you know, right. Yogi Berra, you know, quote that said, you know, I, I, I that, um, the rest, the restaurant must not, or, I, I forgot the Yogi Berra quote, 
But something along the lines is that um, people never go there because it's too crowded. I think that's it, right? Um, and it's, it's a kind of funny thing. If you want a crowded restaurant, so you want to keep your prices as low as possible. And for a restaurant, there are certain fixed costs, right? Your mortgage right. that you're paying on the building, the electricity and the, the water bill and all that kind of stuff is fairly well fixed. The the recipe, you know, ingredients, the food prices, they're going to be given to you, you know, externally because, you know, what's the price of tomatoes or, you know, hamburger or whatever it is at, at these days. The one place where you can vary this a little bit is in your labor costs, right? So you can... You can do this by one paying lower wages, but also adjusting how many people that you have on staff at any given time. And as I mentioned before, you know, there's a danger in, oh, I want to, you know, keep costs low. So I'm going to keep my number of waiters and waitresses at, at a minimal level. But what if a lot of people come in and it's busy and they can't handle that? That's very problematic. So the solution here is to actually keep prices low and to bring people in. You're going to bring the high roller diners, the ones that really like it, but then also get those people that have lower reservation prices. The people are, you know, like, eh, I don't really go out as much, but yeah, it's kind of cheap. So I'm going to go out and, and, and have that. So you want to bring those people in to the restaurant as well. Um, and the way to do that is to keep prices low. But you still want to camp, compensate your staff, right? There's this idea that, oh, restaurant owners just want to exploit their, their you know, workers and stuff. No, no, no. Exploited workers know they're exploited. They're not happy and they're not going to offer good service. So you want to compensate them, but you also want to keep low, uh, labor costs low. Chipping, lo and behold, right? So let the, let the customer who has different preferences for different levels of service decide what kind of service they want and reward accordingly. So, they, you know, that's great is that everybody kind of can come in the restaurant, the restaurant fills up, the people who really love the service, they're going to throw down 20%, 25%. The people who, you know, are a little bit more price sensitive or don't care about the service as much, they might not tip as much. It might only be 5 or 10%, but at least they're filling up the tables. And that's beneficial to employees because, you know, again, if these people stop showing up, the, the reaction of the, the restaurant owner is to be, well, we're just going to pull staff. You know, sorry right. about that. Um, and actually, you, you saw this. Uh, there was a number of experiments that were tried, uh, you know, starting about 10, 15 years ago. Danny Meyer, famous restaurateur in New York City, did this. He said, we're just going to pay our, our uh, waiters and waitresses a, um, a living wage. Right. And uh, so the prices went up and we had a few restaurants here in, in Seattle that did that as well. Well, what happened was that people freaked out by, you know, the price on the menu. And they said, well, I'm not coming here that often. Right. right. And, and they started to, you know, order less drinks. They skipped dessert. And so one of the restaurants in town that I know that did this, you know, they saw their you know, seatings go down and they saw people spend less. And so what they had to do was to start, you know, reducing hours of their employees. And so they didn't, it didn't work out for them. But when they returned back to tipping, you know, they could actually have more of these people on staff. And some of the, the staff that, you know, did a really good job um, really made bank. Um, I, I was surprised when I was told that um, during a recent month, uh, a, a relatively high end, not super high end restaurant in town, um, the the average server was making about sixty five dollars an hour in tips. 
Hmm. The the best server was getting $98 in tips an hour, right? Like, whoa, I was like, I'm I'm quitting my job and doing this. Now, you know, it's hard work and stuff like that, right? So uh, you can understand that uh, not everybody would want to do that, but uh, you can do pretty well. In fact, what's surprising is that whenever there's been efforts to try to eliminate tipping, it's been the server staff that really dislikes this. They say, no, 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 we're, you know, uh, we actually do better with a lower wage and then getting tips, especially the ones who are really, really good at it. Right. And when Danny Meyer went to this uh, no tip service and stuff like this, his best servers left for other places hmm. because their net take home pay was lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of a, a problem there. Uh, that actually occurs. Now, some people bring up the issue, well, you know, what about the back of house, the dishwashers and the bus boys and the, the, the chefs or the cooking and staff and that. Um, and a lot of times, you know, restaurants will have some arrangement of pooling the tips. Right. Um, so, if, you know, they'll share them with the back of the house because you want to keep them happy. And, and then there's a principal agent problem there too. Right. The waiter that's there on the floor wants to keep the kitchen staff happy because if there's ever a mistake, they want them to correct it really fast. And mm-hmm. if you're a jerk, they're not going to do that for you. Right. right. No, I took the wrong order down. Could you do a quick rush job here? Um, and so even if there's not pool tipping and, and weirdly enough, and I don't get this, there are some states uh, here in the United States that outlaw the uh, tip pools that mm-hmm. allowing to you know put everybody's tips in. I, I don't know why, but even in those uh, states that eliminate tip pooling, uh, the staff, the wait staff will actually go and tip the back of house as well too. Um, so it, you know it kind of goes on illegally. Well, we won't say anything about that. We won't point fingers at anybody, but um, that kind of becomes um, a solution to that problem as well. So it's it's a great way to, uh, you know, for me, it, it's kind of interesting that when, when people say, well, we need to eliminate tipping and then create higher living wages for the um, wait staff, this actually benefits the richer individuals who you know, are big rollers and like, oh, I'll tip 30%. Now they don't have to tip at all. They kind of capture a lot of the gains from trade there. And it, what it also does, too, is by raising the price, the menu prices, it prices out some of the lower end consumers. Right. So the people who are a little bit more poor, they don't get the opportunity to go out as often. Um, you know, and if, if you're concerned about social justice here, that kind of it's kind of weird. Right. Eliminating tipping benefits the richer customers and harms the poor, poorer customers right? by eliminating their, the, uh, the service there. Mm-hmm. Two sort of follow-ups, I guess, to a couple of things you point out there, because I think I want to dig into them a little further. So the first thing is that, you know, you, you did mention the in, in places that have tried uh, the, the no-tipping policy, even maybe even certain restaurants might t- uh, try this. Like, you know, there's been some problems. You you mentioned in one case where the um, where the sort of uh, servers uh, have seeked other, like, jobs kind of thing, and they want to go to a place where they can get tips probably is what happened there. Um, if you were to sort of make an economic prediction about, let's say, a law being passed tomorrow, in, you know, that disallows a region or the or the federally the United States, let's say, from either paying a lower uh, than rate than minimum wage or, like, for instance, raising the minimum wage for uh, servers or, or, or uh, you know, because they're a really good example of this tip thing. Um, do you think the, on net 
the restaurant industry uh would just suffer and, I, and by that i mean not just like you know the owners and their revenue and so on i mean i mean the servers as well do you think we'd see less restaurants less servers employed and that kind of thing would there be like an overall shrinkage of the industry do you think there'd be like an overall net negative effect if this actually became policy i i do um and it's not going to be dramatic but it's going to happen at the margins mm. um and and this has been uh you know tried in a few other places in washington dc about five or six years ago they had um, a proposal to eliminate the subminimum wage that wait staff or tipped employees are are paid. Interestingly enough, it was the tipped employees that said, "No, no, no, we don't want that. You know, we don't want a higher wage. Keep our wages as low and and keep tipping." In part because you know restaurants said, "Listen, if if you get rid of that subminimum wage and we increase your wage from like you know four dollars an hour to now ten or fifteen, uh." I'm just, you know, in order to get people into the um, the restaurant, I'm going to have to tell people to stop tipping, right? So, okay, so the, the worker benefits because they get a stable $10 an hour or a stable $15 an hour. But, you know, again, sometimes you're making $30, $40, $50 an hour, especially on those, you know, busy Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights, right? Which allows you to maybe only work four days a week and have three-day weekends. That's the benefit, right? Um, and... So, I mean, that a lot of servers didn't like that. Uh, you're seeing something considered in Chicago right now where they're doing the same thing. And I worry that that's going to go through because, well, it's being really nice because you're giving more pay to the, the wait staff. But you know what restaurants are going to do? They're going to tell you not to tip. And they're probably going to start cutting back on some of the hours of their staff. So you're going to get slower service. Right. You become more irritated. Like, why can't I get table service? I have to get to the theater. Why aren't they coming with the bill? Why aren't they refilling my water glass? And again, it's it's not something that will impact people right away. But you'll start to notice that, yeah, service ain't as good as it was before. Mm-hmm. Right. The other thing, it goes back to the principal agent problem, is that if you give everybody a higher living wage, um, and you're getting $15 an hour no matter what, you know, is the server going to want to actually customize service? Um, do you want to go to that table that has the screaming kids? Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Right. I, I get $15 an hour. How you know, how many times I visit that table? I'm not going to visit that mm-hmm. table. Right. And again, service is going to kind of suffer at the end. The people with the you know family, they're kind of embarrassed. Their kids are screaming and stuff, but they're not getting served. I'm not coming back to the restaurant anymore. All of a sudden, you start to get empty seats. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an interesting transition. The state of Washington, where I'm in, got rid of the subminimum uh, wage as part of this uh, minimum wage increase, and I didn't know about this. Right? It took it, this is a year or two, uh, but you know, talking to my uh, you know friends at the tavern, you know, they said, "Oh yeah, 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 we're up to you know the regular minimum wage now, which in you know Seattle area is around seventeen, eighteen dollars an hour." And I'm like, "Wait a minute." You're making like eighteen dollars an hour, and I'm tipping you like twenty five percent. You're really making a ton of cash. And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, we are we're making a ton of cash." But, but on the other hand, you know, my my wife and I have been saying, "Man, it is so expensive to go out to restaurants, right?" You know, we're not poor; we're in an upper you know income bracket, um, but we've really cut back on our restaurant visits. It, it doesn't take a lot, right? So it's just a few dollars more every you know, a couple of days or something. Yeah, well, you feel that, right? Mm-hmm. And and we have noticed, and you know, I tend to, as a social scientist, evaluate my own behaviors, especially on stuff that I study. It's like, yeah, we've really cut back um, 
the times we go to restaurants. Um, you know, we had that punctuated, you know, period where everybody was told to stay home during COVID. Uh, so a lot of people tip just to keep the servers, you know, employed and, and the businesses going strong because, you know, after COVID, we hope that all these restaurants will come back. But, you know, now that it's back, I'm starting to say, wow, it's way too expensive here. Uh, I might not be going as much. You might not need as much staff uh, support. So uh, there could be some unintended consequences here. Right. And and the second thing I want to follow up on, because when you were talking about um, the price discrimination, so you talk about t- t- uh, some pe- some restaurants, for example, again, back to that good, those good examples, this idea of tip pooling. Um, of course, each sort of restaurant or, or whatever, maybe other place that offers a similar type of service where there's lots of tipping going on, you know, each business is going to have its own individual culture and understanding between the people that work there. But just when we sort of zoom out and think of our economic models, is it not there? Is there not a risk when you do sort of tip pooling that you are going to dilute like the main sort of agent's performance, for example, because they might get discouraged and say, no matter how hard I work at, you know, this table, or that table, there's always a percentage that's going to go to someone who it's not that they're not doing important work; they're just not earning that tip kind of thing. Is is, is there that sort of not, not free rider problem, but something similar to that when you think about tipping? Yeah, and um, there's always that problem, but I don't think the tip pooling is always a hundred percent even. It isn't a completely egalitarian, you know, uh, a society where everybody kind of gets evened out. And even if it was. Um, and you're a super server that is really hustling and, you know, you're pulling in the 30% tips all the time. Right. And, you know, your core worker is not doing as good a job and they're only bringing 10% into the pool. You're going to stop and tell that person, you know, maybe you shouldn't be here a little bit. Mm. Right. Um, they're going to get pushed away from, you know, some key tables. They're going to get the ones that, you know, the teenagers before the high school football game that are rowdy and never tip. Right. Um there's ways of using social pressure of dealing with that. And the other thing too, and you know, again, this is just between you and me, (laughs) but when you tip in cash, you know, it doesn't always go into the tip pool. Sometimes it goes into the pocket um, there as well, which is by the way, when I always tip in cash, um, there's all that, you know, issue about the, uh, you know, tax uh, collectors and things like that. But uh, we'll, we'll leave that for another day. I just say, Tipping cash, folks. Right, exactly. And as always, we say that, you know, it's, a, it's audio for our everyone's education, not an endorsement, etc. If, if the uh, IRS no, is listening. No, always obey the law. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, so a couple more things I want to ask. Our, our time's in, in its sort of last swing here, but I think uh, one thing I did want to um, get into as well, and, and you do note this in, in your article there. Well, you know, if, if everything everyone's heard you say so far uh, makes sense to them, Tony. Sometimes people will think of that last trapdoor sort of question, which is, okay, you know, you, you, we've talked about, you know, repeat service as an example for tipping and so on and so forth. And, and there's all these great ideas around this, why the social institution exists. But when you come up with that sort of example of someone's on vacation, let's say, in a certain location, and they're probably never going to go back to this restaurant again, uh, some people think that sort of provides a sort of puzzle uh, to, uh, you know, to you know, a puzzle piece that's missing to this why we tip conversation. You know, if, if I think you wrote in your articles, so I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but if this idea that all human beings are supposed to be like these profit and maximizers kind of thing, it was the incentive there not to just like no tip when you're on vacation, for example, and because you're never going to see these people again and you don't really care and you're taking advantage of keeping money in your pocket. Um, you have an interesting answer to this sort of conundrum, but sort of what what is it, though? I'd like you to explain to our listeners because some people might think it's a great question. Why care? Right? And it's one that has 
puzzled a lot of economists, including Milton Friedman, who raised the question, why would anybody tip to a restaurant that they know they're never going to go back to again? You know, and it, you can follow up that question. Why would anybody at one of these restaurants, that roadside diner that gets a lot of transient business, ever want to give you good service? Mm. Because they know you're not, you have no incentive to tip. So it, it should be, you know, rather poor. And to some extent, you see that at some of these these restaurants. But the bigger answer is is more philosophical. Markets need a, a moral code to operate efficiently. Right. We need to be able to trust one another because successful markets are broad markets, ones that bring in a lot of other people. And as Adam Smith said, you know, the wealth of nations is dependent upon the division of labor. But the division of labor is required that you get into this big, broad, extensive market. And the bigger the market is in which we interact, the less we know about other people. And if we start suspecting other people that they're not trustworthy or they're not generous or they're not gracious, with their time. And if there's an error, they they won't correct it. They'll just say, hey, too bad, buddy. I don't care about you. You're never coming back. I'm not going to go to those businesses anymore. The economy will actually shrink. Mm-hmm. So generalized social trust is very, very important for a market economy. And we as a society try to inculcate that into our children to, you know, via various social norms and rituals that teach it's good to be generous. Right. Somebody who's been kind to you. okay. the bill says you only need to pay twenty dollars, but they they were really kind. Give them twenty five. Right. That builds trust between individuals. This is what we talked about in gifting as well. Gifting is one of these rituals that, you know, say I'm willing to sacrifice for you so that in the future, if you ever need anything, you know, I'm a good person. Right. Um, and and so, you know, it's inculcated, but most people don't really think about tipping in terms of, well, oh, this is the principal agent problem and I'm going to maximize my utility. And they pull out their fancy calculator right. to do an optimization problem. Right. Just, I've been told to do that. You know, be nice to other people and other people will be nice to you. And when everybody's nice to one another, you know, people trust one another. I'm more willing to go to somebody I don't know and engage with them. Mm -hmm. Glenn Lowry, famous economist from Harvard, now at Brown, used to say relations before transactions, right? You need to build strong social bonds with other individuals. And even individuals you don't know, you're going to have weaker bonds, but you trust them. Mm -hmm. You need to know that I can trust this person. I'm on vacation. They're going to treat me well when I go into the restaurant. The only way they know that I know that they will treat me well is that they know that I will treat them well. So we need a very strong moral foundation in order to make markets work. And this is part of the puzzle of why we tip. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not the only reason. There's a lot of other ways you can foster that kind of generalized trust. This is just one piece of that. But I think it's a really important piece. And I think it's really neat, especially when my all my students think, oh, you teach you know political economy and that's all about greed and self-interest and all this. I go, you know what? If you want other people to be good to you, which is in your own self-interest. You need to be good to other people, and we need to learn how to do that, and we need to teach it to our young'uns so that in the future we have a society where everybody trusts 
one another. Right. Yeah, no, I think the point of like sort of a social tr- trust and sort of, I guess, like, you know, the discipline of consistent dealings and all that kind of stuff, like that's a very interesting point because, you know, especially these days with all this technology and stuff, I've, I've heard very strict technologists and sort of talk about like, oh, you know, like we, we have like ease in commerce and all this stuff today because, you know, there's all these like security apparatuses that low, lower costs. Like, well, well, we've had markets for like almost ever. And, you know, it wasn't until security cameras that that's when people stopped bashing each other on the head. Of course, there's other exceptions. But there were markets and trading and, and commerce and relations before, you know, uh, modern policing and tech too, right? Not everyone has to be watching everyone all the time. So there's, there's a very good point. I like that one a lot because there's there's something there and, and like a social framework around all this. Well, just like if I go to a restaurant I've never been to before, I don't say, okay, now what do I do? I've never been here before. You know, you know you're going to get seated probably and, and go through a routine. So it, it's it, these subtle things every day, right, make up our social context. Yeah, I, I very much worry about a world where everything is perfectly optimized the way that all the econometric models predict, mm. right? Those very sharp lines with equilibrium points that, you know, all we have to do is just calculate everything perfectly. Right. Um, that's a very sterile world. It seems a cold world and an unfriendly world. Mm-hmm. I like a little bit of air and slush and, you know, forgiveness, the the grace for forgiveness or the the grace for you know errors that are are made, uh, as well as just general kindness. I mean, kindness, being nice to other people, is really what makes free markets work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't stress that that sort of enough. And when my students hear me say that, they're oftentimes befuddled uh, because all their other classes are just about calculating that perfect equilibrium. And I say, let's live in a sloppy world where we make mistakes, we forgive one another, and we give generously to one another because we'll all be better off. Right. No. Absolutely. It's a very good and interesting perspective. And the final question I want to sort of throw at you before we move to our formal wrap up here is, um, you know, and, and you even note this in one of the articles, too, is it's sort of like a, a final trap door people try to like throw at, at the discussion of tipping and why it's useful. And it's usually actually from their experience. They're being very earnest and genuine about this. They say, look, I, I've been to a, I've traveled somewhere or I've been uh, I've experienced a culture and experienced norms in a different country or some people are from those cultures or norms. And they say, like, we just don't do tipping, but people still give each other good service and i know you had a bit of a pondering paragraph about this in the article but if you wouldn't mind reiterating that here i'd like to hear your thoughts on that yeah you know as i mentioned earlier these social norms that need to promote trust and generosity and stuff um they can come in a lot of different forms tipping is one way of doing this gifting is another uh, way whenever i talk about gifting they say oh i come from this culture we don't do you know christmas presents i go okay but do you do these other things oh yeah we do these other things so you know all societies have you know slightly different ways of of managing that i think there would be an interesting comparative study to see you know how service uh, does matter across you know different societies that do tip and that don't tip uh, my own experience is that, you know, in places I've been where tipping is not allowed, service is a little slower, you know, and other people say, well, that's good. That's how we do things here in Florinlandia, you know, and I'm I'm like, yeah, but I, I want my, my glass refilled with ice water every so often and stuff like this. Um, so I, I, I think there is, you know, some of uh, the principal agent problem going on. But on the other hand, too, I think, uh, especially for academics that see this, we go to, you know, we see the world through the uh, lens of a hot, uh, Marriott hotel bar, right, where they're going to be pulling in some of the best employees that say, okay, you know, you got the Americans coming in, make sure you give them good service because they're kind of cranky. Um, 
So I, I think that's, you know, it's something that needs to be investigated more. Uh, I've largely thought about tipping and gifting within the United States context, but um, it's something that I would challenge a lot of academics to, to take seriously, because again, it seems like a frivolous topic, but mm-hmm. it deals with these core issues, principal agent problems, price discrimination, you know, wage compensation, and you know, how people um, you know, choose their forms of employment. These are very, very important things. But additionally to that, it's about you know, society in general. So you know, we need to pay attention to the broader framework of the markets that we exist in. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And with that, Tony, I did want to move us to our formal wrap-up as uh, we're in the last swing of our time here. So um, in each episode, as you might recall, last time you were on, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word to bring the conversation full point, uh, full circle, I should say, and put a finer point of, on the uh, exploration of the question. So let me ask you the, the official last question. W- what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on why we give tips and whether that's a good thing. In other words, if you wanted someone listening to you here to take away just one or two or a few things, if anything, in all this, what do you want them to take away? The biggest takeaway goes back to that social norms point, that generosity and graciousness is very, very important for free markets. We need to develop a culture that promotes graciousness promotes generosity because that will facilitate free markets. You can't go without that. On top of that, I also want people to understand that, you know, there are these principal age and problems and issues of price discrimination that come up. And these institutions that have been developed over time and have evolved over time um, oftentimes are very effective, even if they might annoy us a little bit. It's the old Chesterton fence. Why is that strange fence sitting there in the middle of the woods and there's you know no, nothing around it? Well, it's probably there for a reason, and we oftentimes don't think about it. So maybe you know, yeah, it's it's easy to get annoyed with tipping. It's easy to annoy, get annoyed with some gifting rituals that we often have to do. But it's important to kind of understand the broader context and also to use the institution for in in proper ways. Right. Don't tip at self-serve restaurants. Don't tip, you know, for getting just a, a plain old cup of coffee as compared to some kind of fancy, you know, cappuccino. Right. Institutions do evolve. They can evolve effectively and become better over time, but they can also decay and become worse. I worry that the you know, spread of tipping and more and more people asking for tips in places where there shouldn't be is really decaying the, the you know the problems with the principal agent problem, the issues of price discrimination, but also injuring the culture that comes from it. That you know we're doing it now because we have to, not because we sh- should do it to be generous and gracious to others. So keep that in mind, folks. Relations before transactions and be generous and gracious to one another. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So Tony Gill, thank you very much for joining me again on The Curious Task. Thank you. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. 
Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.